Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on today's show, we welcome Alex Nahanke, partner at Scale Venture Partners. Alex and I discuss his early career as a tech banker at Montgomery & Co. and how some of the deals he worked on shaped his views on investing and partnering with founders. We dig into Alex's first VC role at Crosslink Capital and how the mentors he had at the firm instilled some amazing lessons on managing outcomes as a venture investor. We also cover how Alex was an early advisor to Dollar Shave Club and how his friendship with the founder Michael Dubin came to be. Next, we jump into Alex's current role at Scale Venture Partners and how his focus on vertical SaaS became his calling card as an investor and why so many VCs overemphasize the TAM question. Lastly, we get Alex to share the things he got right and wrong on some of his investments like Keep Trucking and Root Insurance and why he decided to lead the Series B in Rose Rocket. But before we jump into this week's interview with Alex Nahenke, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. All right, welcome back to the tank, John. Nice to see you again. You know, I got to see you in person a couple times in the last few weeks. I want to talk about that. You know, you had an amazing summit, the Mavericks Private Equity Summit, uh, I believe last week, and we had our Ripple Ventures AGM in person where you were gracious enough to host a panel with Mark McQueen and Sean Silkoff. I want to talk about how much of an impact these in-person events are having in building stronger relationships, networks, and opportunities. You had gentlemen like Danny Reese, founder of Canada Goose. You had Jim Balsilli. You had people from Cohere and Xanadu. Uh, you had Margaret Atwood, who is a phenomenal presenter, I must say. You know, Tell the audience how important these events are for building stronger growth and prosperity in Canada. I just think nothing matches an in, in-person human event. You know, we've gone through a few years through the COVID cycle and the number of people that wanted to interact, number one. So the strengthening and building of relationships and trust. But the other thing is when we had our summit, if you recall, it, it was opened up by Peter Zan, who, you know, he's you know, globally renowned, especially after his uh, Joe Rogan recent appearance, but they feel more free to say what they really mean because we do have Chatham House rules. When you do it on a digital basis, I think there's a little bit more of holding back just in case, you know, at least for, for our conference, you know, the comment that a lot of people had was, A, it was great to see everybody and get together. But number two, the content delivery was insightful and different. You know, we're big believers in that. And yours was absolutely fantastic. And I made some comments on there that I don't necessarily want to have it distributed all over the place either. And so I am far more open to tell you what I really believe on stuff. And I think that's better value for, for the listeners. That's a great point. Yeah, there was you know an adamant decision from our perspective, I'm sure it was for yours, to not record or live stream our AGM, to have it very closed doors in person. I did watch Peter's presentation in person and then the one he gave on BNM Bloomberg. And they were similar, but there were nuances that made it different. There was nuances, yes. He was a lot softer on BNN. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's a great observation. Tell people who Peter is, because he is a phenomenal thinker a leader in what he does, but maybe just give our audience who Peter is and why they should listen to what he has to say. So so we have two advisors from a geopolitical perspective that really helps us from a macroeconomic perspective as we're looking to deploy our capital. Ian Bremer from the Eurasia Group is one. Peter is the other. So he's a geopoliticist. 
his claim to fame is a book in 2014 called The Accidental Superpower. And without going into a lot of detail, it was basically the disintegration of the global world order as we see it and us reverting to a period that will look more like pre-World War II than in any period in the last 70 years. And what's important is he's right, and he's been predicting uncannily all of these geopolitical events like Russia attacking Ukraine, etc. And it helps you determine where you want to place your bets. And his views, and his strongest views, is most controversial. He said that China will be done in a decade, but he says that in a very mathematical, detailed way that you may disagree with the conclusion. But when you see the data that he's pulling together, you could argue he's pulling together data that serves uh, his purpose for sure. But it just makes you think and then you can try to replace his data with your own data and draw your own conclusions. But it's the process that I find most fascinating with Peter. And now, and I started a relationship with him 10 years ago, and now he's this rock star. But he loves Canada, and he loves Toronto. So he'll be back. Yeah, fantastic mind to be able to just listen to and how he interprets a lot of the things going on in the global world is super important, even when it comes down to the micro level where you're investing in individual companies. You know, speaking of individual companies, Waterloo's ClearPath Robotics sold the other week to Rockwell Automation for a reported 600 million plus. Uh, the company had been reported also doing between 50 to 75 million US in revenue. You know, it's a 14 year journey for investors. You know, investors like Kensington, Inovia, BMO Capital, McRock, Garage, Export, the list goes on. What does this say about sort of one, the MA markets, two, you know, the acquisition being a call it 10 times revenue, uh, and how long it took for an exit in this name to happen? Yeah, I think it's a great outcome and it's a great result. We need some more liquidity. Uh, to return back to investors so that they could redeploy. You know, ClearPath has been on a long journey. They did kind of have two separate business units, call it the ClearPath Robotics Unit and then the Auto. Again, I don't know the details of the two, but it it seemed like the Auto, one O-T-T-O, was the one that was really triggering the value and doing quite well. It's it's wonderful to see that. One part is, you know, should that have stayed in Canada, but it has been a long journey. And I suspect, you know, with all those uh, good investors behind it, they made the decision saying it is better off going to a large player so that they can scale it up to much greater levels. And perhaps it was limited in its ability to scale up uh, independently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a great outcome for all the investors and people involved. And yes, it is something that ended up in the U.S. hands, like most of our great Canadian companies do. But this one seems to be finding a great home for itself to continue to build on a mission. You know, talking about something that didn't maybe end as well as Investor Hope is a company uh, in Toronto properly, uh, which was trying to reinvent the prop tech market, recently announced the uh, sale or I guess acquire of the business after almost six years of building it, the co-founder Sheldon McCormick wrote on LinkedIn that the company is going to be absorbed essentially by Compass, a New York stock exchange listed company. No details provided. Don't really want to get into the details of maybe what or did not happen. But I do respect the founder coming out and saying, you know, it's time to be moving on and taking a break. We tried something, the market shifted on us, and, you know, we found a home for the, the business and the assets, and I'll be taking a break and coming back. I wish more 
founders did this when something doesn't work out as planned, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Wear it on your sleeve as a badge of honor. Actions like that, when he thinks about his next startup from a venture perspective, that is someone who would attract my personal attention for sure. Yeah. I highly respect when founders do that. And I think it is a badge of honor and we should talk more about this in Canada because I do think uh, the U.S. is much better at talking about failures than we are here as well. That is the point when people talk about, is there a cultural difference? It is the result of failure and how it's accepted in each of the two countries. I do see that as a difference. Yeah. And going back to sort of the, the AGM that we had and obviously the events that you had, you know, there was this conversation of what can we do more for you know, supporting Canadian entrepreneurs? I think there are a lot of things we are doing physically to support our entrepreneurs, but it's the mental part of sharing the badges of honor those uh, failures more publicly is probably one of the biggest things we do very little of here. And we need to do more of that. Yep. You know, we do, do we question whether our Canadian hockey players have less heart than the Americans? Do we do that? No. Why? Whenever I see that discussion, I just poo poo it. And it's a mindset. It, it it tells me more about the individuals thinking about that, because if you believe it, guess what, folks? It's true. But Matt, I know you don't believe that you're any different from any VC in the United States. They may have more capital than you. And that is a fact, but it's not a risk appetite. It's not, a, you know, intelligence level, all that sort of stuff. Like, it's just utter utter bullshit and i wish people would just knock it off and focus more on the tangible stuff which yes we are at a disadvantage to the united states but perhaps not a disadvantage to the rest of the world right and you shared the uh the pitch book annual university rankings report speaking of you know great entrepreneurs can come from anywhere especially universities in canada so right now you have four uh universities on the list six six sorry you got waterloo uh taking the top spot at number 21 with 17 billion and basically what they did was they took the top five companies of capital raise where the founders went to school so databricks was a three and a half billion dollar raise so far with waterloo Instacart, which uh, is awesome to see that. Clearco, I don't know how to pronounce this one, Kuadi Dashi and uh, Blend Software. And then you've got University of Toronto at number 27 with 15.3 billion. Again, Databricks, OpenAI, WellSimple, Korea Therapeutics. Very interesting to see some of the names they did include here, especially for names like McGill University, where they put Indigo as capital raised. (laughs) Indigo was in there. Yeah, $1.7 billion for Indigo, and they also doubled up with Clearco uh, and others, uh, Therapeutics. And then you've got, obviously, UBC with Coho and CRISPR and stuff. Yeah, the data, I mean, you could always whine at the data, but but directionally, the conclusion is our schools are doing an absolutely fine job, and our people that are going to the schools. Now, what you could harp on is, well, where where are they actually building their companies? Are they building them in the United States versus Canada? That's a separate discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I do have a bit of a bone to pick when you kind of pick off the Canadian founder. You know, there was articles written about Elon Musk and how Canada had such a huge impact on him. I just don't find that say, you know putting your flag on somebody's back uh, when they haven't even said it themselves is a bit of a you know a head scratcher for me sometimes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I completely agree. 
One thing I thought that was really cool uh, this week was the software that came out called HeyGen AI, which allows you to create engaging content videos in multiple languages. Did you see this demonstration that someone did where they created a video in English and then it was transcribed to French and German in real time? Yes. Yes, yes. It was absolutely fantastic. I am so impressed. I can't wait to have our team create more content for our RippleX Fellowship program in multiple languages because we have Uh, have about 26 countries tuning into our program on our public course. But obviously, we haven't been able to transcribe it into their local languages. So this is now the opportunity to do it. And these are the software tools I think that AI can really generate awesome opportunities for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess uh, Google Translate's going to have to uh, really up its game. Well, well, you were saying how you thought that, uh, you know, the the Gmails of the world uh, were going to make a reemergence with some of the software that we were seeing being created with AI. It is interesting how slow some of the Google releases have been to incorporate this AI, isn't it? Yeah, well... It's also that they're they're now mired in a uh, Department of Justice trial right now, so I think that they're going to have their hands full and being very very careful. Like they're they're being treated like Microsoft was in the late nineteen nineties on, on the on their bundling. So I do wonder whether they're they're being a little hesitant on how they're bundling some of these applications together. I have no idea whether that's even the case or they're just late to the party. Interesting. And last thing I want to ask you, John, so we've got some big American IPOs coming up. We've got the Arm Holdings. We've got Instacart. We've got Clavio. What do you think will be the first Canadian tech IPO to go public, either in Canada or the US? But I have my thoughts. What is yours? Oh, oh, oh. I, I, I haven't thought through that. I, let me address the US one. When people are going, well, is the IPO window now open? Well, I'd say yes and no. These are three spectacular companies. I mean, Clavio people haven't really paid too much attention, but you, you, let's just use Instacart. Everyone knows Instacart, but its last private valuation was what thirty-nine billion dollars, and they're estimating this will be eight to ten billion. So, yes, it's going public, but it's going public at a three three quarters less than what they had expected. I've always said there's never a great time to go public. There could be a really, really bad time, but good quality companies will be able to go public. The question is the ones that are really in that growth stage, the earlier ones, is this opening up the path? which I guess now gets to your Canadian question, because there is no Canadian candidates of this ilk. There is one that I know of that would be getting up there in size, but most of them you know, start to consider going public at $100 million or thereabouts. And, and there are a few businesses in Canada uh, of that size. So, But I, I don't know. What's your guess? Well, I know you're referring to Curtis McBride's Myovision, which you obviously led the recent round in. But Curtis himself said he's not looking to go public until the operating metrics become more predictable. Correct. I think you have names like Vendosta. I think you have Clio, the legal tech business. Yeah, the one the one that people uh, are talk about a lot is is Hopper and whether that will go uh, that well, whether that will go public. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll have to see if these US IPOs rocket ship away and open up yeah. for the next batch. The arm one, the arm, the arm one is one that 
I think is the most optimistic one. That will be fascinating to watch. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us in the tank today, John. All right. Thanks. Take care. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Alex Nahenke from Scale Venture Partners. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Alex. Yeah, thank you for having me. You know, Alex, you've been a VC for a long time and have seen your fair share of ups and downs in the VC markets, but without dating you too much, it'd be great if you can give our audience a brief background on how you got started in the investment industry as a banking associate before moving on to the world of venture capital. So I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My dad was a serial entrepreneur, uh, born in Europe. He sold his company. That's what brought us to the U.S. And my dad worked eight days a week. And if I wanted to hang out with him, I had to go to his office on the weekends. And, you know, I always like to joke, my dad had two languages, politics and business, and I care less for politics. So we mostly talked about business. I uh, studied business in school because, well, you know, that was the only option that was presented to me. It was the only thing that I knew. He didn't go to college or anything like that. And and then after school, I, I, I thought, well, I wanted to work with lots of different industries and lots of different companies. And the school that I went to, they had some of these investment banks come on campus and, and do recruiting. And so I went through that whole process. And probably through my dad's kind of entrepreneurial genes and roots, I fell in love with a startup venture-backed uh, investment bank uh, based out of LA called Montgomery Company. And so I, I joined there and they were trying to build kind of a, a modern merchant bank and in the wake of, of some of the acquisitions that happened in the 90s and reinventing that. But the really neat thing, which is what gave me exposure to the investing world, is right after I joined, they started actually doing some direct investing. And if we go back, you know, 20, 20 years, the world was a little bit different. Crunchbase didn't exist. And sourcing meant driving down the freeway. And if you saw a .com in a building, you would, you know, go on that webpage and you call on that company. And that's, that's sometimes how we found deals. Well, we were doing these really incredible deals. We sold MySpace to Fox, you know early days of social. And we were like, oh, we should invest in those companies as well in the traditional merchant banking model. And there was a partner that was brought in to do that work. I thought that that was really intellectually stimulating. And so within 12 months of me being there, I was standing outside of his office saying, hey, do you need any paper stapled or anything else? And so I like to joke that I, I started you know, working in the investing world when I was uh, 23, mostly by accident. It wasn't anything that I pursued. I just saw and thought, hey, that's cool. I want to go do that. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, first off, spending time with your dad meant you had to go to the office. is similar to what I had to go up with. My dad owning a fruit and vegetable market. You know, I was stocking shelves and you know, pushing around grocery carts and stuff like that. But do you think your time seeing your dad work so hard also gave you an understanding of what it meant? to actually work hard and see what the outcomes were? Or did you think that that he was working too hard for what outcomes he ended up deriving from very long afterwards? You know, it's like the classic immigrant story, right? I, I think my dad did a lot of things because he didn't know better. And he did the things the way that he did because that's the only way that he knew because he figured it out himself, right? He left home at 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there and just kind of started building. There was no formal education. His parents didn't provide him a guidance for how to be successful in life or how to build a career because his parents were the war generation, right? They were just trying to keep their heads above water. And so I think my dad did his ways and he did his ways, but he always emphasized the importance of, of education. And, and, and so I, I probably got an unfair advantage due to his enablement, which is, is I got to grow up in really nice places around lots of different people. And I saw what success looked like and what different models of success looked like. And so. I took that in my education and, and, you know, brought that into my career, but I, he's been an immense influence on me. And I definitely have much more compassion for the entrepreneurial journey, not just because I saw successes of which there were some, but because of the many failures that I saw as well, the immense challenges and the, the need to just get up the next day or go to my sports games or, or whatever that was required. 
you know, no matter what was going on in his business, because they all didn't succeed either. You know, there's a bunch in there that failed. Yeah, I know. I, for me personally, seeing the failures that my dad had in the inefficiencies in his business is what drove me to think about how small businesses could be run more efficiently, which is kind of what we do at Ripples is helping businesses run more efficient. But I also, you know, my dad always said, work hard, play hard. I always said, work hard, play harder. And that made me think about how, you know, there were certain times that you wanted to spend time working, but other times you needed to like reset yourself or you would just burn out. Being a banking associate, you work on a lot of certain things. You said you were standing outside a gentleman's office trying to see if you can staple paperwork, but you also worked on some amazing transactions. You got Series A deals done all the way up to Series D and M&A rounds. Which transactions would you say you learned the most from during your time there? And how did you think about the human element of investing versus the qualitative aspects of investing when you were working there as well? The, the very neat thing was we were growing. When I joined the firm, there was 40, 50 people. And, and by the time I left, you know, it had gone to 150, back down to 50. It was, it was a boom and, and then a bust. Having joined at the right time, like so many people, I got an unfair advantage of exposure early on in my career. Maybe to your question, I think of two opportunities. One, I won't name the company, but it was a company where we were running an M&A process and uh, we were selling the company. And it was a very, it was a tough process. The company ended up selling for a few hundred million dollars. Everybody made money. But I remember the investors saying, ah, well, we did this deal. We, we thought that the management team was challenging and that turned out to be true. And it's just been the longest five years of our life. And, but fantastic. We made a three, four X multiple. And I thought to myself, that's a terrible way to live, right? Like you knew you didn't like the entrepreneur going into the transaction. You never got along with each other. Let me tell you, the M&A process wasn't pleasant either. We as advisor were, you know, we were doing more therapy than anything else. And so, you know, my, one of my mental models is I have to want to work with the people that I invest in. And I've really held true to that. And, 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 you know, the entrepreneurs that I have in my portfolio, I feel ecstatic to have them in my portfolio because I deeply admire them. And then, and maybe the second, you know, deal that I was involved with just kind of talks to your question around the human elements is I think a lot about what motivates people. And I was fortunate enough to work with a company in a small town, uh, Kelowna, Canada. If anybody ever wants to go on a wonderful vacation, go there. You probably know that place. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And we sold this business, uh, three founders, you know, they owned all of it. I think the headline was 700 million, but the immediate cash was 350 million. And most impressively, the first thing those three founders did was they took 50 million. They just donated it off the bat. And I've thought about that a lot, which is like, what is enough and what do you want to do? And what can you do? Right. And then they each took home, you know, the remaining third of their portion or whatever it was. But like, what's really cool is those three founders are three very different individuals. And one of them has kind of disappeared. And I think he's enjoyed a very nice life with that money. Money clearly is important to him and a motivator to him. The other founder who was kind of the creative genius behind the game, I remember seeing him a year later. He used to ride his bike to, to work. And I was like, yo, Lance, what'd you do with all your money? And he's like, I bought a Mini Cooper. And I was like, you bought a what? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he ended up, I think, like paying out the debt on his parents' farm and so forth. But like he, you know, for him, it was the creative element of game design that he was so most passionate about. And that's why he got up every day. And then, and then the other founder, Lane, who was the CEO of the business, I think he's on um, the Dragon Show that's really big these days in Canada. And, you know, he's built a biz like a building down in Kelowna, and he's very like big figure in the tech community, really trying to give back and so forth. And I think for him, that leadership position is is really really important in that community. And I, I think looking at three different people that built a very valuable business and seeing what motivates them and, and what got them happy at the end was was really interesting. And so when I meet with teams and we do diligence. I think a lot about like, what are the motivating factors behind this entrepreneur? Because it really influences how I engage them and, and compel them to bring the best out of themselves. 
Yeah, I absolutely love those stories. You know, it's easier, I think, at the end of a journey to see what motivates people. At the beginning of, you know, early stage investing where we are, people are just so focused on the problem and trying to like, you know, fundraise and, and get something to work before telling us about their passions because it may appear as distracting. But I actually personally love those conversations because it does allow me to align perfectly with them. You know, after moving on from Montgomery, you spent some time at Crossland Capital to lead deals like Bleacher Report, which got acquired by Time Warner, and Flurry, which got acquired by Yahoo. Do you think having some of that success early on in your career at your first VC role impacted your views on investing in startups? And what were some of the biggest challenges you faced as a new associate at such a well-known fund like Crosslink? I mean, I think you're really generous in saying that I led those deals. And, and you closed it at the end and said, I, look, I, I went... I went the traditional path of the venture industry, which, you know, 15 years ago was a little bit different than the last five years, which is I, I left Montgomery and it was during the 08, 09 timeframe. And there wasn't a whole lot of hire going on the venture industry. I moved from LA to San Francisco. And I like to say that I applied for, you know, any firm that had venture or venture capital in their name, I applied for a job and there was like two jobs given out that year. And I was ecstatic to land the job at, at Crosslink. And, and I threw my heart into it and I spent three years there as an associate. It was a tremendous experience. I'm really thankful for all the people that mentored me there. I think that seeing what success looks like is really important in exposing yourself to people who are successful. I had very good mentors there that showed me how to do the business, how to engage with entrepreneurs, how to do some of the soft things that we've been talking about in this conversation, and showed me various different aspects of it. Loved working on those deals, those transactions. I still have you know relationships with a number of those executives and entrepreneurs 15 years later. And you know one of the fun things about the technology industry is you know a certain number of us continue to stay in it, and so we just we run into each other every five years when we're doing something new. And so that's exciting. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, speaking of transactions, you were an advisor to Dollar Shave Club for five years, which eventually got acquired for a billion by Unilever in 2016, which is a crazy number for a consumer brand. Uh, but tell us about how that opportunity came about to be an advisor. And what were some of the lessons you learned from that experience? Oh, this is a this is a wonderful story. Michael Dubin is, is just a fantastic person and, and, and a, a genius in his own right. I had the incredible fortune of, of hanging out with a bunch of degenerates down in the Venice boardwalk in my 20s. There was this gal in our crowd, and she, she brought along this guy, Michael Dubin, at some point in time, and we dated for a while. And he was kind of bouncing around and figuring out what he was going to do next. And eventually, she got pretty frustrated because she felt like she felt like he wasn't heading anywhere. But we, we had to, unfortunately, they broke up. We had to sit her down and say, hey, look. I know that you broke up with your boyfriend, but we think he's really fucking funny. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. And so we're going to keep him in our social circle. So you're just going to have to put up with him still hanging out. So I had, I had a really, really strong and still have that. We still have a WhatsApp group. All of us you know, are in it every day, all day. And he was in that. And so when he was starting that business, he had randomly bought a palette of like really terrible razor blades, like really terrible. I remember trying to shave and they're nicking my face and all that kind of stuff. And he had this idea for for launching a consumer brand. He hated Gillette. He hated the purchasing experience. And and he really is that person that you see in some of the videos. He is a brand genius. And that was very apparent from the beginning. And I happened to be his one friend that was in the technology world. And so we had a phase where we were chatting pretty frequently with one another. And, you know, he was kind of asking me for advice around raising money. I think at some point in time, the pre was like $250,000. He's like, do you want to buy like 20% of the company? I had this really dumb rule, which was like, I don't invest in friends, but I was really glad to, you know, hang out and give him advice. Um, obviously, if I invested at 250K, I'd probably be living on an island right now. And he was really, really nice at some point in time said, hey, look, you know, you've been such a, such a helpful hand in this journey. And 
I'd love to kind of have you be an advisor and give you some advice shares. And I, I told him, I'm like, look, you need to do what you need to do for yourself. I did this as a friend. And so this is not a journey of, of somebody bringing me in because of my brilliance. It, it just happened to be that it was a, you know, a guy that I drank beers with that I ended up doing something absolutely incredible. And so, you know, he's, he's, he's a wonderful guy. Wow. That's an incredible story. And you know, that rule about, you know, not investing in friends, have you changed it since this experience or no, you still hold true to that? Well, I, I, I invested in a company called Scout RFP when I joined Scale and I knew none of those guys for a long time. We did meet through tech, but they moved to San Francisco and we actually ended up like running all the time and, and hanging out and my wife and their wives became friends. And then, and then their series C came around and I, I wrestled with it. So we did institutionally that a scale invest in that. And, uh, it was a very fortunate transaction. We sold it a year later for three, four times our investment. It was an incredible IRR. It's a, you know, good outcome. But I remember my wife is much smarter than me at the end of that transaction. I was kind of talking about it. I was like, I don't know. Maybe we left some upside. Maybe we could have got for the IPO. And she looked at me and she's like, you idiot. She's like, She's like, this is a win. You can go back to being friends with them now. And it's all good. And I was like, ooh, she's very smart. And then, you know, for you, my friends have, we don't, um, at scale, we we prohibit, we don't do seed investing as individual partners. We think that it just gives the the potential for for conflict down the road. And so we try to avoid that. I do have a few friends that start venture funds. And, you know, sometimes out of support, I, I give them some money. I actually... I actually think all of those, they're all like tremendous, tremendous managers. And I'm so proud to consider them my friend circle. So, but also my check isn't meaningful. I'm not, I don't have that kind of affluence. Yeah. It's one of those things you kind of think about later on, but I, for me, the conflict of interest is clear is like, if it's a early stage investment that touches B2B enterprise SaaS, you know, Ripple Ventures gets the first look at it. And if we pass, then maybe, you know, my small pool of capital can uh, invest as an angel. But if it's consumer and we don't do that, then it's it's easier said than not. But, you know, speaking of scale, you joined Scale as a partner in 2013. You know, what attracted you to the opportunity there and how has the firm and your role evolved over the years? Yeah. So I, I actually joined as a principal. It took me a few years for them to recognize my brilliance and promote me to partner. <laughs> I say that sarcastically. Um, no, I, I think that there was a lot of change going on at Crosslink, and this is really, really hard for people who have gone through the last five years of venture to understand. But fundraising used to be really tough for venture funds, and we were in a little bit of a tougher phase at Crosslink. In fact, the, it's, a, it's a bit of a sad story. I was recruited by three partners, and while I was there, two of the partners passed away of, of cancer, and so the whole team got rebooted. They brought in two fantastic GPs, Eric Chin and David Silverman, who really run the venture efforts there these days. But the firm had also gone really heavily into clean tech and semiconductors, and while there's a lot of enthusiasm for clean tech these days, it was very different in that kind of 2010, 2012 phase. I decided to um, move to a new platform somewhat, I think, in hindsight. I, when people tell me now about switching venture firms, they're like, would you re- advise? I'm like, hell no. I thought I was just going to walk from Crosslink over to Scale and all the trust and credibility and and my ideas and everything that I built up would just be transferred. And it was like, I had to like start over, right? Because the people at Scale were like, well, we don't know if you're a good investor. I'm like, but you hired me, right? But but the, but that wasn't enough, right? They wanted to see my work for a 12, 18, 24 months. So I joined as a principal. And you know, the, the, what I like to tell people is I really, really felt that the partners were scale were people who, going back to an earlier question, were going to be mentors in my in my career. And when I look at folks like, you know, Andy and and Stacy and Rory, folks who were who were here back then and have, you know, kind of shepherded me through my career, it's, it's been really tremendous. I've learned a lot from them. And then the other thing is, you know, there was nobody from Sequoia calling me, so let's not confuse that. But I I feel like if you join Sequoia, the only thing that you can do is make the firm worse because they're kind of at the top. And I think it's like my dad's entrepreneurial genes. I like the idea of joining a firm and continuing to build that brand. And if I think about like, I, I tell people that this is the last job that I'll ever have. I've been here for 11 years and I'd like to be here for the rest of my career. 
when I leave, I hope that somebody in this organization that we're hiring next year, who's going to, you know, work their way up and, and then eventually fire me, you know, I hope that somebody looks at it and is like, how did they build this? Right. And, and the, the, the easy answer will be, well, day by day. Right. We just kind of went at it and try to prove it every day. Yeah. You like to join a place where you're continuously raising the bar, but if you're joining Sequoia, it's very easy to pull down the bar as we've seen of late, but it's very hard to push it even higher when you're already at the peak of Everest. So I get that. You focus on vertical software markets there. What led you to focus on vertical software where incumbents have failed to invest in technology? I like really boring software. <laughs> no, no, I kid. I, it's strange. I, so when I, I started my career, and maybe this is an interesting conversation. We talked about Club Penguin earlier in my arch. My, my first project actually coming out of school at Montgomery, we were doing film financing. So I worked on, I think Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. We were raising $50 million for the production studio. And then, you know, we did MySpace and we sold these companies to Viacom and Disney. And I was in the media space. And when I moved to Crosslink, I, I was still doing Bleacher Report, which was a media property, but we were also kind of looking at the systems that were powering those media. And so I kept moving more and more towards software. And I became increasingly uh, less popular at um, family gatherings. When I was at Bleacher Report, people were like, ooh, you're, you're like, tell me about that. Now people are like, oh, you're, you're an investor in a, in a transportation management system? Okay. Um, the, the intellectual curiosity for me has never changed. Like, I, I think that what my dad taught me is a deep, deep interest in business as business models, go-to-market distribution, how all those pieces fit together. And I love, I love diving into an industry and getting super geeked out about the dynamics within that industry, the different players, and putting all of those pieces together. And I think that that core curiosity, just like one of my partners loves digging into infrastructure software and like using the software to build his own apps, I really like researching almost a top-down hedge fund type of way. Industries that understand the dynamics allowed me to be successful in a space where there was room at scale, which is when I joined, I had to go find my niche inside any partnership. I think it's always important that you build some brand, some proprietary knowledge for yourself. And we have this dynamic where construction or transportation or fintech companies were coming in. They were really interesting. And none of the partners had any interest in engaging with them. And so inevitably, they always like to just like say, they're like, well, we promoted you and we knew which deals you were going to do, which was a set of risks that we wanted exposure to, and we had nobody to do it. So it ended up being a very comfortable match for everybody, and, and I've kind of loved it. But yeah, it's it's not as popular at you know social gatherings. Well, you, it sounds like you like to untangle that messy web of interactions in business and, and, and commerce. You know, I feel like you're a fan of the movie Usual Suspects. Yes, you know where everything comes together at yeah. the very end, right? That's such but a you're brilliant just movie. This, it's such a brilliant movie, and I think about this in, in where we invest as well. It's like when you hear about how the owner of a business is troubled by some type of problem and how that problem connects to somebody else down the food chain, but they're also looking at the problem and describing it completely different, but you're the conduit that brings them together. It's like, if we can just fix this on one end and this on the other, all of your problems will be solved. It seems like that's what really gets you going. And you've written about you know, the misconceptions around vertical SaaS. You know, so maybe explain to your audience the most common mistakes investors make in this space and maybe people at your you know backyard barbecue parties on how they think about it and the definition of what vertical SaaS means today and how it's kind of changed over the years. Well, and, 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 and if I could just hijack one thing that you said, and I promise I'll get back to your question. I think the biggest issue, and this is a bit of a controversial point of view, I think the biggest issue in vertical software is sometimes people innovate on product. In fact, that's the most common place to innovate. And sometimes people 
innovate on distribution. That's less common. But almost every very successful vertical software company that you look at, what they end up doing is combining those two. And so now going to the question that you asked about, like the common mistakes, I get really annoyed when people are like, oh, vertical software is just too hard to sell to. The buyers are too antiquated, right? Like nobody at an insurance company, at a transportation company, at a construction company is like, you know what? I really enjoy crappy software. That's what I really want. Like it's it's really discriminating and really disingenuous when I hear people. Or being ask, told that they're too stupid yes, to understand how the software yeah. works. I, I'd rather be on pen and paper. Yeah, like or like healthcare, right? Like the 20% of our GDP. So we're saying 20% of our economy is too stupid to consume software. Like that's not the reality. Often these are regulated environments and they have real problems. Or if you look at specific industries, I like insurance as an example. Transportation has some of this too. These were the earliest adopters of software in the 80s. And so the reason that they're sitting on old, they actually adopted software before all the other industries did. And they have a technical debt issue, right? Like you actually don't appreciate the fact that they were innovators because you showed up so late to the party. And so I think that's the first misconception that a lot of people do is they just avoid the sector because they, they have some really bad beliefs. I think the second is around market size. And look, it, are these markets as large as Facebook's market or Salesforce market? I, I know, of course not, right? But like last time I checked, the 10 or $20 billion outcome is just okay in just about everybody's you know, book, right? And you can build those types of outcomes in vertical markets. I think that's because people are very narrow in how they think about market size. And I've written about this as well, which is we like to think that market size is one number. And the really great entrepreneurs have you know this axis where they are pushing product and customers at all times. When you start within a certain, it's the Peter Thiel zero to one, you start with a really tiny product in a specific niche of a very niche market. And then you expand that product and you expand that product. It becomes applicable to more and more people. And eventually you discover that you're serving a pretty darn massive market. So those are those are some of the basic misconceptions that really confuse me a whole lot of the time. No, I absolutely love that. I mean, you bring up market sizing. Let's address that, you know, and double click on it for a second. You know, how do you address the objections around the vertical markets have a smaller TAM? And why do VCs always argue about this misconception of TAM is still too small or it's not something that I would bet on as a VC fund investor? I think the mistake that a lot of people in the industry and VCs are at the top of this list is what you should use market sizing exercises for. It's because we are taught this in school, right? That there's an answer to something and that the answer is this like singular number that you spit out at the end. And so a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes get frustrated with me because I force them to go through a market sizing exercise with me. And I could care less about what the outcome is, what the answer is. I don't, I don't care if the answer is 400 or 800 or $1.2 billion. What I'm listening for is how they think about their market. What is the sequencing within their market? What is the ICP of customer that we're focusing on today in 12 months and in three years? What are the products that we need to address those customers today in three years, in five years? And if you as an entrepreneur can't communicate that to me and can't construct from that some semblance of like, look, this is the constraints on the market size today. This is what it'll be in three years. This is what it'll be in five years and how to evolve that. Then I think that you probably don't have the caliber of strategic thinking that I think the best CEOs have. But by kind of diluting this market sizing question into, well, it needs to be a billion dollars. And if it's under a billion dollars, we don't invest. And if it's over a billion dollars, we do invest. I think we completely, you know, forget the only thing that's important in this, which is like, how do we build this company? And by the way, a market sizing exercise can be very illustrative to basically building up a business plan. 
That is absolutely brilliant. It's like how people try to filter with like, oh, if you're not doing a million of ARR, I don't want to talk to you. But like, what if that million is made up of like three customers that like they just sold to three months ago and they haven't even expanded yet? Walk me through the process. I love that. That is absolutely brilliant. You know, maybe share some examples of vertical SaaS companies that you've invested in and why they are successful. And then maybe also share how those companies expanded beyond their vertical uh, solution into a horizontal uh, and taking over the horizontal counterparts. Probably one of my most successful companies is a, is a company called Motive. Uh, it used to be called Keep Trucking. They sell safety compliance and payment solutions to trucking companies. One truck, five trucks, 15, 20 trucks. And I invested in the company back in 2016, 2017. I come from a transportation family, so there's some familiarity. But touching on a few points that you highlighted, um, when I started my diligence, the company had half a million dollars in ARR. Months later, they had a million dollars in ARR. By the time we closed the deal, the company had $2 million in ARR. And so there was a whole slew of investors that just missed the business because they focused on the absolute value and not the delta, right? We're stopping teaching kids calculus in school, which I think is just absolute insanity because the venture business is all about first derivatives and second derivatives, right? Like nobody cares about the absolute value. Like the rate of change is the only thing that matters in the venture and that slope. And as it pertains to motive or, or keep trucking, that was and has and continues to be the, the pushback. Everybody's like a market size because the product that they went to market with was this compliance, this electronic logging device product that tracks how long a truck driver drives per day, per shift, per week. It's a bipartisan compliance law in this country that they're limited on the number of hours that they drive. And, and, and the historical solutions were really difficult to use. But most importantly, this distribution was very top-down heavy. And so when you talk to the incumbents, they said, we don't even pick up the phone when fleets under 25 trucks use the product. And the entrepreneur, Shoaib, was brilliant, built a bottoms-up Dropbox-like product where you could actually download the app. He had some connections to Pakistan, and he said, with low-cost labor, I can support these individual business owners. You know, today we have over 2,000 employees in Pakistan that are, you know, both selling and servicing those customers. It's an incredible success story. The company is, is quite large. And all along, people have always told us the market isn't that big. And my reaction to people is always, well, Samsara is, is public at a few what, six, $800 million in revenue, you know, we're, we're not too far off at motive. There's a, you know, company called Omnitrax that's, you know, doing about 500 million. Linux is doing a few hundred million. I add all those numbers up and it's bigger than the marketing automation market, which no VC would ever say the marketing automation market is small. And by the way, these companies are all growing faster than the marketing automation companies as well. Right. And I think what it really is, is like naivety. Like people aren't familiar with the different constituencies and different players. But what's really evolving in this market, I think that's why Samsara and the public markets is one of the most attractive multiples that are going on right now is people are starting to connect those dots and they're starting to realize the power of these. And this goes to that kind of like lily pond expanding market size theory, which is that motive, we started with that compliance product. Then we added a camera product. Our camera business is is almost as large as our compliance business at this point in time. And it's growing faster because the ubiquity of cameras in all vehicles is status quo today. Wasn't totally obvious five years ago, but you know, to show it, he was like, "This is definitely going to be a really big market." And now we're laying on payments because fuel cards are this other massive market. There's like a ten billion dollar public company in the fuel card business, right? And so you start connecting all of these different pieces, and the market that you know uh, folks were telling me might be a two, three, four hundred million dollar market, we far exceeded those levels. And 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 you know, I think people are now starting to put those pieces together. And like, oh my gosh, like this this has the potential to generate a few billion dollars in revenue down the road, which to me was always obvious through really good execution. It's not easy execution, but really good execution. 
allows you to have those opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it's another example of like when you start to layer on the different parts of the industry that can be combined together in a vertical SaaS solution, your mind just goes crazy. It's like, this is a trillion dollar market opportunity. And one of those other opportunities for you was your investment in root insurance. You know, tell us about your thesis and how to evolved in root insurance. Maybe give our audience a brief background on what they do. And what did you get right and wrong about your thesis as the company obviously scaled to an eventual IPO? I'm still new enough to this venture business. Maybe I'll say that until I retire. I don't know. But to, to always be getting just really brutal lessons about the volatility of the investment business. So we we really started looking at, I've been looking at fintech since 2009 and insurance was this this bastard child at, at fintech conferences. And around 2015, 2016, uh, going back to what I was talking about vertical, I really started digging insurance. I was like, I don't understand this industry. I really want to learn. Hired a summer intern that had been in the industry. He was you know, at Stanford. He spent three months with me, really helped me get up to speed. And one of the areas that we we thought was really compelling was new data sources for better underwriting. And from that, we started looking at really different categories with insurance, property, casual insurance, car insurance is a mandated product, $220 billion. And that's all filing. So we know it's not like the fake market sizing. That's like, you can go to each of the states, pull a $220 billion industry. And the way that most car insurance gets underwritten is they they take your FICO score. It's a really good predictor of, of your risk. It's not perfect, but it's about as good as that is. Plus the past driving behavior and some demographic stuff, depending on the state that you're in. We start doing diligence and all the diligence revealed that um, driving data is actually the best indicator, much better than that. And that the iPhone was able to track all of that information. Metromile had this idea early on with the dongle, but consumers, the, the, the break off of the dongle phase was just too tough. I, I looked at that Metromile business years before. And so I, I got a chance to meet a number of entrepreneurs in the space. We at the time made a conclusion. I think it's the right conclusion. It could be wrong. That selling to the carriers, there wasn't enough car insurance carriers in order to sell the technology. And so we did a slightly unusual thing at scale. We mostly focused on investing in business software, though, for some some consumer businesses that consumer purchase will make exceptions. And Root ended up being one of those exceptions where we thought we had the insight into the market. That is, if we could collect data on the individual insurance users, they would get better pricing by just allowing us to track them on the app. And in many ways, that thesis is still true today. That is, driving data is a better indicator for loss rates. What did end up turning out is that scaling a insurance carrier from the bottom, but with all the statutory capital requirements and so forth, was really hard, maybe harder than I realized. I definitely think that, you know, I have some battle scars now. And when I look at new carrier businesses, I'm like, Ooh, this just looks so hard. Give me, give me an easy SaaS business, right? Like, do I really want to go down this pain again? But I think the more important lesson there, and I, I've talked with the founder, Alex, about it as well. He, he, his name also happens to be Alex. And I think he would agree with this. Is It was kind of during the good times, we'll, we'll, we'll go phase. And so we invested a $200 million valuation. I think at peak, the, the company was at $4 billion. And, and in fact, at one point in time, one of our KPIs was how much money had we raised. The insurance business is an asset management business. But this drive to just grow, grow, grow in a risk-bearing industry, lending and insurance have this really funky criteria which is they're the only industries where you're dumb enough to sell a product without knowing your cost of sales. And you find out 6, 12, 18 months later, you know, they are the type of businesses where a boardroom of VCs that generally do SaaS business show up every quarter and say, we should grow faster. And the CEO's like, are you sure? And then the VCs say, yes, we should grow faster. And there is no constraint on growth other than the pain that you will feel 12 months later when you discover that the risk that you underwrote wasn't quite of the caliber that you wanted it to be. And so I think the real challenge of Root was we grew that business a little too fast. COVID hit. Our um, capital market situation became really complex. We had to push the company into the public markets in order to resolve that. And then simultaneously, Apple got really, really difficult. One of the really cool things they did was they did all their acquisitions through 
mobile apps. But then if you remember, Apple deactivated that tracking and it really whacked your business. And we suddenly discovered that we were competing with the traditional carriers. This is Geico and others who do Super Bowl commercials for acquisitions. And they're very good at acquiring customers in the exact same channels. Well, having a little bit of a loss problem. And so while I invested in a $200 million valuation, it went up to $4 billion. I think at some point in time, my $10 million was worth a few hundred million dollars. Today, our, our $10 million investment is, is you know, at best at cost, if not below that. And so it's been a it's been a pretty wild ride for us. Wow, what a roller coaster. I think like a lot of the things you're saying, though, in terms of the lessons were the customer acquisition costs, especially in these types of markets, are very important, uh, especially as capital becomes more constrained. And understanding exactly the value chain and how it goes both ways is reliant on other intermediaries that can disintermediate you very quickly at the flip of a switch, which are hard to predict and hard to underwrite, but it's possible and you need to be aware of that. And the only control you have is the input, right? How much capital is being put in to make sure that the output is logical in all scenarios. So obviously understood there, you know, given the carnage you mentioned in the IPO land where companies now especially are being forced into an IPO like an Instacart to clean up the cap table and the prep stacks, you know, with companies losing over 90% of their IPO price, how have you changed as a private investor holding public equities? Well, Scale's philosophy has always been pretty consistent. And in fact, Root is the exception because of my idiocy, which is we, we have very strong relationships with a very consistent LP base. And we try to keep things very simple, which is we, we do not think that our area of expertise is public market investing and in fact we we have deep respect for lps and think that they have access to the best public managers in the universe and so we have limitations sometimes about how we can exit these positions often root is an exception i was out on the board and, and our ownership was on the smaller side but it's not uncommon for us to own 10 15 percent of the business at ipo and to have an important role on the board and that obviously has real limitations around how you can unravel these positions. And then sometimes you need to look at the liquidity of the stock. You obviously don't want to dump the stock and just completely run as trading. But, but I think that the best method that we have discovered is dollar cost averaging out over three or four or five periods in a relatively predictable way at each open window and each opportunity. And if you're slightly more bearish or bullish, you can kind of argue for three versus five periods, but within that range and don't overcomplicate it. Rube was one of those exceptions where I went to my partners because it was 2021, all my peers. And this is where like herd mentality can really screw you up, right? I think you're an advantage not being in the Valley. All of my peers were like, we should just hold on to stocks forever. That was the mentality. And everybody was highlighting how everything was successful and and nobody was like well the, the stock market in general like you could have just bought the s&p 500 and held on to it it's had a hell of a run right and, and so i went to my partners and i said we, sh- we shouldn't you know we should sell it at the root shares you know they had a tough first quarter but this is a management team that's always hit their numbers always executed well and they had some miscommunication with the street that was my argument and and what we should have done is we should have taken a third or half our position off and i would have been in a much happier place today and so for me that was a lesson in and control the things that you can control and, and and don't try to control the things you can't control. And I don't think you can control the public performance of a company that much. And I don't, one of the advantages of working at Crosslake was that they were a hybrid venture hedge fund. The hedge fund people, it's a very different world. And I, I discovered how naive I am about public market investing, working inside of a firm that five feet away had public market investors. Yeah, very true. Yeah, I came from the hedge fund public markets world. So when I look at a lot of things now, it's, uh, it's hard for me not to want to sell uh, when things are being priced at you know 50 times ARR <laughs> compared to where the public markets are. But it's interesting. 
And we have such an information disadvantage as retail investors. I mean, the guys on the public side, the volume of research that they have access to and the information that they have access to, I'm not suggesting non-public information, but other alternative sources that are no, that are often indicative and proxies for- Alternative data yes, sources are just more prevalent yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But let's bring it back to the private side. You know, you mentioned uh, investments in logistics and trucking, and one of your recent investments is a company that we know well, which is Rose Rocket. You know, why did you decide to lead the Series B, and how has your thesis-driven approach to investing in the logistics space help you land on choosing Rose Rocket as your top pick to invest in? I saw that you were involved with the business. Oh, yeah, and that, for sure. that was that was that was what I wanted. I was like, boom. I had known Justin for for quite a while, and I had felt that for those not familiar listening to this podcast, Rose Rocket provides a, a transportation management system. This is basically the core system that in the trucking or in the brokerage or in the transportation space somebody would use for the two most important things. The first is, is, is tendering and bidding a freight, right? The procurement. I have some goods. I need somebody to move those. Or I have some trucks. How do I find more um, freight to move within those trucks? This is the core system for that procurement, that tendering and that bidding process. And then once two people, two parties within the ecosystem have agreed upon it, they also manage the the financials and the monitoring of the movement of that freight. So this is this is the system of record in this industry. There are two or three legacy incumbent players that nobody likes. You go through all the reference calls and everybody's like, look, I include them in every one of my RFPs. I hope not to buy it, but sometimes I don't have an option. And then there are maybe 20 or 30, 5, 10, $15 million fam- like family businesses out there that spit out a million, $2 million worth of EBITDA and somebody in Santa Barbara surfs a lot and has a very, very good life. And I always felt there was an opportunity to build a modern solution there that brought all of those different ecosystems within the freight industry. Because again, big industry, but lots of sub-industries brings those together and then uses modern technology to bring all that connectivity. And one of the things that's happened, and I saw this through Motive as well, is real-time tracking of freight has drastically changed in the last half decade. And the technical requirements in order to enable real-time tracking, just the way that we get with our UPS or FedEx package, are very different than what the last generation of technology built. Justin was probably the most thoughtful entrepreneur that I'd known for a number of years. And and candidly, I, I always wanted to work with them, but the business was kind of meandering. It was growing, but not quite at the standards that we did. And they put together a heck of a year last year, and, and Justin and I started a conversation. And so... You know, I begged and screamed and got on a term sheet as quickly as possible and said, please take my money. Oh, fantastic. Well, we're super excited to have you on board and partner with us. I mean, you know, I've already learned so much from you being on the board of Rose Rocket in only a few meetings. You know, I got to ask, though, what are some initial rules that you live by when it comes to joining a new board? And and how has your board roles evolved over time? And how do you change over time being on a board for consecutive board meetings? I'm a sandal aficionado, and I, I'll go even further. I, I only wear rainbow sandals. I've been wearing them since I've been about 12 years old. And maybe this means something for a few of your listeners, but um, you know, sometimes people don't like flip-flops. They're like, ah, it hurts me between my toes, or you know, they put on a pair of rainbows. They're, like, they're a little bit uncomfortable, and it's like, the great thing about rainbows is like the first day you're like, did I make a mistake? And I, I buy a new pair every year or two years. And every time, every, it's, it's the same thing every time. You're like, did I make a mistake buying these? And a day later, you're like, ooh, maybe they're starting to work. And then three days later, you're like, they're working. And then a week later, you're like, this is the most comfortable pair of sandals I've ever had. And the reason that I mentioned that is just I've owned so many pairs of sandals. And it's always the same experience. And I think boards are a little bit like that, which is like, you go to everyone and 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 they really are unique and they're different. And you really have to be cautious to bring too much, which is 
in the end of the day, it's about that, that founding team, that CEO and how they've constructed that business. And I usually in the beginning, um, and I didn't do this really in my venture career, actually asked the CEO whether for the first half year or year, we can do it bi-weekly, like every two, two or three weeks, can we do a phone call just for 30 minutes? And by the way, we can cancel it a bunch of times too. It doesn't matter. But just to increase the velocity of communication, because you kind of have this like romantic dating period when you're doing the term sheet closing. And then, and then you realize afterwards that you actually have no connection to the business and you don't know what the heck is going on. And it ends up making me a really terrible board member. And so I've discovered that almost all my entrepreneurs even have to have a year, a year end up wanting to keep that phone call. And so, you know, I do, I do those phone conversations with most of my entrepreneurs. And through those conversations, I often learn what my role on that board should be. And, and for the first couple board meetings, it's mostly listening because I think it's very insulting to that existing board and the folks that are there that I come in and, and I know what the business should do because, because I don't have all of that context. But within a couple of board meetings, you generally discover, just like those sandals start fitting, you start to discover your rules. And I've, I've roles where I play a very loud and active role and, you know, almost a chairman-like role. And I've, I've boards where I play a very passive and quiet role. And I let other people really dominate that environment because I think they have the rest, best skill set for that board. And in certain boards, I, I really focus on the finances and other boards, I, I really push on team building. And, and that also evolves depending on what the needs of the companies are. I try not to be formulaic. I try to really interpret the situation and deliver what I think that the entrepreneur of the company needs, which is really hard to read at the outset. And you got you to wait a hot minute and let it come to you. Yeah, I love that analogy. The rainbow sandals, letting them work yourself in, work yourself into the relationship with the other board members who obviously have a lot of history. You come in person. I, I commend you uh, for flying up here to north of the wall to meet the the board in person. I absolutely love the time we get to spend together. You know, the other thing that you do, we do as well, biweekly uh, founder calls. As soon as we invest for the first six to 12 months initially are allowing us to warm up to each other personally and professionally. Uh, and it's great to hear you do that at your stage of investing too, because not a lot of investors do that. You know, I got to ask, you've been on so many boards. What other board members have you worked with that you highly respect? And what is it about them that makes them great board members to work alongside? You know, the first skill of, of, of being a good board member is, is, is knowing when to talk and when to shut up. And too many board members talk too much. And so the, the board members that I admire, they're very thoughtful about when they inject into, into conversations. Like, for example, on the Motive board, we've had two people at various times on the board. One of them is, is not on the board currently anymore. But like, so for example, like Aaron Schildkraut, I, I think he does some work for Edition now, or maybe he's even a partner there, but he came in as an independent. He was previously at Uber. I'd never heard of him in the kind of exceptional cadre of uber executives right he, he wasn't definitely like one of the top three guys but i think he was incredibly important there and, and he just has a way of being really really thoughtful in the points that that he does and he does it in an incredibly disarming way or even my my, my partner rory or driscoll who I, I think you know he's got four or five ipos under his belt right SaaS ipos there's most of those businesses were sub five million dollars when he invested i the world doesn't give him the credit that he deserves and you watch him as a board member he's stunningly non-political um, and maybe that's something that both of those individuals, like they, they don't come in with any sort of baggage or emotions or anything. They're really just trying to push the best outcomes and they engage the entrepreneur, the CEO, and they see, cause CEOs can smell immediately what, what your motives are. And if they're genuine and if they're honest, and then you approach them in a constructive way. And, and I would say, for example, Aaron is, is very abstract. And so he has a very interesting style, whereas my, my partner Rory is very analytical. And so they have different approaches to those entrepreneurs, but it both results in incredibly positive outcomes. 
and, and, and often encourages real change in those businesses, which I think ultimately you got to really pick your battles at best, maybe once a year, but like picking one good battle per year where you can drive a positive outcome is a, is a pretty big darn success. And I've seen both of those individuals do it with, with immense success. Yeah, absolutely. Such great advice. I mean, pick your battles is so important in life and also in you know board meetings and stuff, but like you can't win everyone. And if you try to fight every time you come to a board meeting, by the time you get to the third or fourth one, they're just going to shut you down. And that may be the biggest change you want to see happen in the business, <laughs> yeah. but you've already fired your bullets and now the founder is just going to block you every time. So I appreciate you sharing that. You know, you recently wrote a blog post on the insure tech market, you know, and how the industry is incredibly fluid and how you're interested in investing in startups, looking to solve the challenges of both brokers and carriers. So first off, I got to ask, you know, why do you share these pieces publicly before making an investment? And second, how successful have these thesis-driven blogs worked for you as an investor to drive top of funnel inbound traffic? I've discovered in my writing, I, I actually, I hated writing growing up. And somewhere when I was 25 or 30, something changed. Something about the traditional educational system just made me not enjoy writing. I, I don't think I'm a, I'm a great writer but I enjoy the process of writing and, and the, the, the encouragement of articulating your thoughts. Scale is a, is a heavy written culture. We write investment theses. We write investment memos, not because we think that it necessarily is the best medium to have discussions around, but rather because it forces the person on point to articulate their thoughts. And that process in itself is often quite revealing. And so I think writing is a really powerful tool to enable that. And I think Amazon has a lot of great literature about how they, they use it in their culture. And I'm a deep believer in all of that. I use my writing predominantly for two purposes. The first is account-based marketing. That is, if there's an area that I'm interested in, I write publicly about my interest in that area. And I've discovered that that public writing, no matter what I write in an email or what I say in a conversation, really allows that top of funnel to open with those entrepreneurs. I think it's putting yourself out there and they appreciate that. If I'm interested in SureTech, as that piece suggests, you know, I will share that piece with certain entrepreneurs over the next six or 12 months and say, hey, I want you to hear how I think about this market. I have discovered over time that receptivity is very important. And then the second piece is that within my writing, I think it reveals my thinking style. I have discovered time and time again, when it gets to the bottom of funnel, we're in the final stages of figuring out the potential work together. Entrepreneurs can use my writing to get a better sense of the type of investor and board member that I am. And I like that body of knowledge on our website in order to allow them to discover that because it's a place that I'm about as honest as anywhere else. And so that's really how I think about my writing. I, I don't think that I have the frequency or the cadence to be a Fred Wilson type, build a very large audience, top of final type marketing. Yeah, I love that. And I ask that only because I believe in it. You know, obviously doing this podcast keeps us at the top of people's news feeds and we have our own thesis driven research reports. You know, being a pre-seed investor, it is even harder to find people to find you because they haven't even left their last job to start their company. So we have to do it. But it's great to hear when firms at your stage also invest in content and the ways that they're thinking internally and share that externally. Speaking of talking externally, you've been pretty adamant on Twitter lately on a lot of different topics. I got to get your take, though, on a couple of things. One is, what do you make of the recent implosion of growth equity investing in most unicorn startups? And how are you navigating the recent explosion of AI investing at the same time? 
I, I feel like putting a disclaimer on my Twitter feed, which is it's mostly there for my entertainment. You know, some people are like, this is not my work account. And mine, I love it. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's my work account or not my work account, but you know, when I'm when I'm feeling particularly snarky on a random Thursday, which is most weeks, I'm like, what 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 can I put out there that'll make myself smile? Is that why your profile picture is from your Venice Beach days? <laughs> you know what? It's even <laughs> worse. I think that's me sophomore year call. That's my college sports team photo. I was think I was exceptionally hungover in that picture um you know because it was like team picture day went out yeah exactly um it's so old right now that i actually think it's credible right it's kind of like past past the expiration if if i think about the venture ecosystem and the different stages we at scale are believers that investing in your stage matt is is binomial outcomes it's about technology risk does the technology work or not and if it works if the entrepreneurs that that you work with can build technology that works they can find customers to buy that and you generally end up having positive outcomes but in a lot of circumstances, it's a high-risk business. Those don't work. We invest a stage after that. We underwrite business execution risk. That's really what we're underwriting. That's why the firm is called Scale. It's around scaling the go-to-market functions of the business. Uh, I talk a lot about a CEO or founder-led go-to-market and, and working with that team in order to make it a scale of people go-to-market during our stage of investing. And then if you look at the, the later stage markets, the growth markets that you talked about, it, the risk at those stages from an investing perspective is, is really two things, market size and valuation. Those are the two risks. And, you know, we can debate about whether we got market size right or wrong for a whole bunch of startups. I, I think that's actually irrelevant in the context of the current environment. I think what we got wrong was the valuations. We, we just got too excited. Interest rates were an influence, but also just the there was a 10-year period where people kept thinking that the business is easier than it is. And the IPO markets getting, kept getting more and more bullish. We pushed a lot of crap out. And so a lot of people threw a lot of money in those categories. And a lot of people are regretting that now. And as they slowly clean up their portfolios, they're a little bit constipated on new investment efforts. But they'll come back. And look, the classic late-stage firms, the IVPs and the Maritex, the world, they continue to be active. And you know they didn't lose their mind two years ago. And, and they're being good stories of capital now. So it's not everybody. I mean, you've seen a lot of data on this stuff. You know, Scale actually has their Scale quarterly Scale studio flash updates where you guys analyze a lot of proprietary data and provide examples of enterprise software startups and give a real look into the industry growth rates and stuff of and the health of SaaS markets. Can you um, maybe share some interesting stats? I remember one you told us over dinner about how 10,000 companies have been uh, viewed upon uh, that were venture-backed initially, and as soon as they fail to hit 2x growth year over year, only 10% of them or something get back on the venture path. What, what sort of data points have come out of this stuff that you share with your portfolio companies that our listeners should hear? Yeah, we we have a software system which came out of you know a decade ago, us in the beginning using spreadsheets. Those spreadsheets got more complicated. Then we tried some off-the-shelf databases where we were aggregating a whole lot of portfolio data as well as prospect data to help us make better investment decisions and advise our portfolio companies better. Eventually, we decided um, that maybe we should run an RFP and see what the best system was for us to build this on. And we couldn't find anything. And so then, very naively, as people had never built software, we're like, okay, let's find a budget, right? Let's call it half a million, million dollars. Let's go build a software system. And we built that software system. And like all great software, when we released it, it was buggy. It had all sorts of issues. And, you know, that budget that we originally had, we invest that every year since. And we never really thought about that when we made that initial decision. But I think that the system over the last three or four years has gotten to a pretty fantastic place and allows us to really extract all sorts of insights. During the COVID pandemic, I think this is what you're talking about, we started publishing a quarterly 
post because we were trying to figure out lots of macroeconomic indicators that are helpful. There's public market indicators that are helpful. There's actually very little indicators of what's going on within the tech ecosystem. Valuations, of course, but in the end of the day, valuations are, you know, they're, they're, they're an output. Growth is the input. Um, that's really the catalyst to this whole industry that we all live in. And we were trying to understand what was going on with software growth rates. And so on a quarterly basis across our 40, 50 portfolio companies, we try to right at the end of the quarter, we try to publish what the growth rates, the average growth rates of those companies are and how that is trended quarter over quarter. We try to publish what achievement relative to their plan and quotas is. For example, one of the relatively dismal things is that over the last three quarters, there has just been a significant degradation in growth. And so a lot of software companies that had a tough start to this year are saying, geez, what are we doing wrong? Our observation is maybe there are some things that you're doing wrong, but also software has just become much, much more difficult because during the COVID period, we saw meaningful acceleration of growth in a way that we've never seen. And I think that the phenomenon that's really going on right now is we pulled a bunch of growth forward in 21 and maybe in 22. And now in 23, we're suffering of that. We're seeing increased churn. And by the way, we also published this. We do double check the data against the public companies and the public companies are experiencing the exact same phenomenon. And so once you have those two validating points, I think it gives you a pretty good perspective of in aggregate what entrepreneurs are dealing with. It then hopefully reinforms our investment decisions, which is we need to reallocate for what great growth rates are right now because the best growing companies today are not going to be growing quite as fast as the best growing companies maybe two years ago. So that's really how we can use that tool. It's one of 27 or 57 expressions of that tool, but that's how we use that tool. Yeah, it's very powerful because one, you've already invested in these companies. So coming to a board meeting or a biweekly catch up with historical data points that are so out of touch with what these companies should be benchmarked against today is really valuable. You know, I hate it when founders are like, well, we invested in this valuation. You guys got to be growing 4X year over year or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. You have to look at where we stand today versus the rest of the, uh, you know, the the landscape and then calculate your outputs accordingly. Uh, so I appreciate you guys sharing those things publicly as well. You know, last question I got to ask you before we jump into the fast favorites. If you weren't a VC, what would you be doing with your life? You know, I was telling somebody that every job I've ever had, I I, I started working when I was 14, 15, partially because I didn't want to, still a little bit for my dad, but I, I really tried to get away. The, the high school years between my dad and I weren't that great because I was trying to establish my own independence and he as a CEO did not deal with independence so well. I've enjoyed every job I've I've ever had. And so I don't I don't think that I, I, I thought about for a while kind of going down the CFO track early in my career and kind of running that, that side of, of things. And so maybe I'd be doing something like that, you know, on the finance side for companies. But, you know, I, I don't know. I worked in a spa college and that seemed great. I worked a pool maintenance job and but that seemed great. You know, I worked as a tutor and that seemed great. So, you know, I've kind of enjoyed everything I've done. I mean, being 6'8", there's so many options. The world is your oyster, you know? You got so many things. A warehouse clerk. Uh, unfortunately, uh, being a, you know, bench player for the Lakers was never the, you know, the gift of a flight capabilities that, that, that were given to me. So, you know. Ah, maybe in your next life. All right. Jumping into our fast favorites. First off, your favorite podcast. I'm very into wine. I really enjoy wine. More importantly, what I really enjoy is in podcasting interviewers. A lot of interviewers really try to influence the answers and try to inject their own perspectives and opinions. There's an individual, Levy Dalton, that does a podcast called I'll Drink to That. 
and he's done a few hundred episodes where he has narrated the story by who he has chosen to interview. And I think it's fascinating if you take the time to slowly work through that library. I think in some ways, conversations with Tyler, he does that as well, right? He he allows people to answer. And when they don't provide him any of the answers, he lets it lie as well. And I think I really admire that. So I, I like podcasts a lot based on who the interviewer is. And then over time, the body work that they produce. That is fantastic. I'll drink to that. It's a great title. I'll check that out. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog. I'm such an avid consumer of, of blogs and newsletters that I, I, I couldn't narrow it down. Sorry to scapegoat that question, but there's a lot. All right. We'll go with the scale studio flash up. There we go. I like that. Anything that I write, subscribe to my website. I don't even think there's a subscription button. Next is your favorite tech gadget. I'm not like a tech gadget guy. So I, I'm probably, unlike a lot of my peers in Silicon Valley, they're always geeking out about something. My son came home, I have a five-year-old. He came home with this, this Pokeball. It's a Pokemon toy uh, like last week. And this thing is freaking cool. So there's like, I didn't know this, there's like 5,000 Pokemon or whatever. And the ball asks you questions, you know, is your, does your Pokemon like to live in water or in caves? And then my son answers those questions and it's a huge decision tree. And in the end, it guesses which Pokemon that my son is thinking of based on this book that he has. It's a really fun game. And it's just kind of brilliant to see where these kids' toys are going because that level of interaction wasn't possible even a decade ago. And the voice recognition, by the way, the toy was, I think, 1999 at Walmart, right? Like, And my son just naturally knows at the age of five how to engage with it as well. And so watching all of that, it, I, I, I love stuff like that. It just gets me really excited. We have the uh, Yodo device that I think was developed by a bunch of MIT engineers and my daughter, two-year-old, has been playing with and her vocabulary is phenomenal uh, because of how they program it and allow you to self-program a lot of the content as well. So I appreciate you sharing that. Next is your favorite trend. Like Capri pants? Yeah, sure. How am I my least favorite? I, I think we are heading into a terrible fashion phase here. We're bringing back, like, I was like, I was like, okay with grunge, but like, like what's going on with like jeans and I, uh, capri pants are going to be in in a second. And like, people are starting to wear like flannel and stuff. I'm like, guys, I've been through this. Let's not do it again. Like, can we just skip the part and get back to like the mid 2000s? Docker boots. Oh, yeah, that's rude. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. I do open water swimming. So I find the whole ice bath thing just absolutely ridiculous. Like go swim a cold lake if you, if you want to cool down. What cold lakes do you find out living in California? I got to ask. I go swim in the bay, but not everybody has access to the ocean. I was trying to be generous. And I just picture Kramer swimming in the East River coming out <laughs> with a sewage on his head. Exactly. Uh, Next is your favorite book. Oh, I, I really like Catch. I mean, I, I'm an avid reader, so you know, I feel like I find an, a favorite book all the time. But if forced to ask, I, I think Catch-22 is like the best business book ever written. And there's a, there's a certain sense of humor in, in that answer. Who wrote that book? Herman Heller, I think is his name. Uh, it's about uh, a World War II squadron, and the phrase Catch-22 comes from that, which is the hypocrisy of, for example, the biggest hypocrisy of the book is that you need to fly like 100 missions in order to um, to basically get off the squadron. But everybody that's flown, tried to fly 100 missions dies. It's like during World War One or World War Two. that's the Catch-22, right? Like in order to do it. And, and I just think that there's like such deep irony of everything in the business world. Oh, that's brilliant. I didn't know that's where it comes from. I love those stories. <laughs> so it's a laugh out loud book. Go go read it. You'll enjoy it. And, and and then you can reflect on why I think it's a good business book. Fantastic. And last but not least, your favorite life lesson. Find humor in things. 
much like my Twitter profile and my approach to a whole lot of other things, I, I learned along the way that I, uh, I mostly crack jokes to entertain myself and make myself smile, but it feels like a good way to get through the hours and get through the days. And it leaves me happy at the end of the day. Cause I think that this job and the job that most people that I do, whether it be the entrepreneurs or the investors, uh, you know, we're always all connected. It's an incredible amount of intensity. I think we're still discovering what the implications of that are. And the type of people that we're all engaging with are all these kind of uber successful type A people. We're incredibly demanding of each other. We're incredibly demanding of our relationships. The burnout, the mental health problems, all those things. I think those things shouldn't be underrated. And, and for me, the way that I, you know, um, move forward in this world is I try to work out on a regular basis and I try to make myself smile. So find some humor in things. Well, I find it very uh, funny, some of the stuff you post on Twitter. Please keep it up to make my days easier. And thanks for joining us in the tank today with partner at Scale Ventures, Alec Nahenke. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcast or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot and hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 